Good morning. Welcome again to Hiawatha Church. We are very glad that you're here uh, worshiping with us this morning. Uh, my name is Jesse Splan. In case you don't know who I am, I'm one of the elders here at Hiawatha. So uh, if it's your first time here, I am not the guy you will usually see up front preaching, but a few times a year I get the opportunity to, which I thoroughly enjoy. So right now we're in the middle of, or actually at the end of an open mic series. We'll be starting Genesis next week, which will take us a while, but should be a ton of fun. Uh, but this week it was open mic, and I was talking to someone earlier this week, and open mic does not mean that we pass a mic around the room and whoever wants to can say what they want. Oh, <laughs> they were like, wow, that's really bold. You just let anyone say anything. It's like, ah, not exactly. No, open mic means that I get to choose what I'm going to preach on versus obviously as we're going through Genesis, if I was preaching, I'd just get whatever the next chunk of text was in the book. So that was exciting because last summer we did a big question series. And what we did is uh, you guys could all write in any questions you had about Jesus or the Bible or faith or whatever. And then we preached on those questions. And if that sounds interesting to you, that series is online on our website. It was there were a lot of really cool things covered. But there was a question I wanted to do during that series that just didn't fit in. Um, so we did, everything we preached were questions that people at Hiawatha asked. And that's great. It's great to ask questions of God. It's great to ask questions about God, about what things mean. But I thought it would be really cool to preach a question, not that we had asked, but go into the Gospels and preach one of the big questions that Jesus asks people. But we had so many questions, it just didn't work out. Um, but since this is an open mic and I can choose, that's what we're going to do. So today we're going to preach a big question, and the big question is, what do you want me to do for you? But this question is not a question that we are asking God. That's not what we're looking at this morning. We're looking at a point in the Gospels where Jesus asks someone else this question and asks them, what do you want me to do for you? So let's get started. We are going to be at the end of Mark chapter 10 verses 46 through 52. And I'll read it in full, and then we'll walk through it and see what cool stuff uh, it shows about Jesus and uh, about us in relationship to him. Mark 10. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that, as we see in the Gospels, that you cared about all types of people, that you were able to heal uh, every ailment and disease and problem that came your way. And we thank you, Jesus, even more than that, how those things all pointed to the greatest healing you gave us through your death on the cross and your resurrection from the tomb and how that heals us of sin. Uh, God, I pray that you would uh, bless the preaching of your word this morning, that everyone here would hear something about you that is encouraging, 
and uh, something exhorting as well. Amen. All right, so we're going to basically walk through the passage, and we're going to start by looking at the setting, what's going on, and the reputations of the two main characters, Jesus and Bartimaeus. Since we do not live in first century Palestine, there's some things setting-wise that don't uh, necessarily connect with us. So we'll talk about that too. But first, the reputations, and we'll start with Jesus. So Jesus of Nazareth, that was what people called him. That's where he grew up. And Bartimaeus calls him the son of David. So Jesus, it says, has his disciples and a great crowd with him. This is right near the end of his ministry. And he was a popular guy at this time. Uh, Everyone in the region pretty much knew who he was. When people heard he was around, they would go flock to him. Uh, so if you've ever been to some like big concert or big event with tons of people where it's loud and kind of rowdy, that was kind of the setting you would have at this point in Jesus' ministry. So as they're, as they're leaving Jericho, it's not like they're all walking in two single file lines and talking quietly. Like There's this mob of people around Jesus and his disciples. And it says at other points in the Gospels that at times the crowd, there were so many people and they were just pressing in so much that Jesus and the disciples literally didn't even have time to sleep or eat. Like, they didn't have time to take a piece of bread, tear a, chunk off of it, tear a chunk off of it, and spend like 20 seconds chewing food, because people were asking them things and talking to them and right in their face. So, there's a bunch of people around. Uh, they're leaving Jericho, and we'll talk in a minute about why Jericho is significant and where they're going. And... Uh, he calls, Bartimaeus calls Jesus the son of David. Now, part of that for us, it's like, oh, Jesus was in the line of David. You see that if you look at Matthew chapter, the beginning of Matthew and the beginning of Luke, they lay out this genealogy of Jesus, and you see that Jesus was a descendant, uh, humanly, of King David in the Old Testament, who, for Jews, King David was like the king of kings, the top of the top. He was the best king Israel had ever had in the history of their kingship. And so he calls him that, which has some significant meaning. One, God had promised to David that someday he would raise up another in David's line who would always be king. And so they had seen these kings come after David, Solomon, who came right after David and had a lot of similarities, but then other kings. And every time you see this new human king come up and they're like, oh, is this the guy? And then something happens, it's like, no, that's not the guy. Oh, is this the guy? Nope, that's not the guy either. So... He's calling Jesus son of David, and he was not the only one to do this in the Gospels, but there were a lot of people who were thinking, this might be the guy. Like, look at this guy. He's teaching. He's got all this wisdom and authority. He's got power. He's performing all these miracles. He has power over disease. He has power over demons. Look at how he interacts with religious rulers. Look at how he interacts when people try and trap him and pit him either against the Roman Empire, which could be problematic because he could eventually be accused of treason, or against the religious rulers, which could be problematic because he could eventually be accused of blasphemy. And both of those are uh, bad things in the eyes of people, although eventually Jesus was uh, condemned for uh, a combination of treason and blasphemy. Blasphemy on the Jewish side, treason on the Roman side. But he calls him son of David. So he's got in his mind to some degree this idea, this might be the guy. This might be the guy who's going to bring back the Davidic kingdom, who's going to kick out the Romans, get us back our land. Look at everything he's done. Look at his power, his wisdom. Look at how he's been doing all these things and no one can touch him. The religious rulers are all really angry. They have plots to kill him, but they can't do it. 
the Roman Empire, they haven't really gotten involved, but you'd think there's this guy and people are starting to have rumblings that he might be a king, but they're not trying to squash this. They're not doing anything. So he calls him son of David. And then you've got, so that's the Jesus background, kind of what was in the minds of a lot of the crowds that were with him. His disciples knew a little bit more than that. Uh, we see in the Gospels, but the average person that was following Jesus, listening to his teaching, hearing his miracle, would have kind of some degree of that in mind. Then you've got Bartimaeus. We don't know a lot about him. He's only mentioned in uh, this passage and in one of the other Gospels that tells the same story, so we don't know anything about him outside of this story, but we can learn something about him even from this. One, it says he was a blind beggar. So begging in ancient Israel was not a desirous job. It was the type of thing you would do if you couldn't do anything else. So he was blind, and we think of it, we think of now if there was someone who's blind, there are, all, there are all kinds of things and resources they can take advantage of to help them in life. Not the case at this time. If you were blind, especially uh, as a Jew and in kind of this Jewish uh, circle, you were seen usually as having been cursed by God. Physical deformities, things like this. Uh, curses from God. There's a point in the Gospel of John where there are some religious rulers talking to Jesus about a blind man, and they said, Rabbi, who sinned, the blind man or his parents, that he was born blind? So there's this mindset of, oh, someone's been born blind. There was some sin that happened, and this is God's punishment. So that was a big part of the mindset. So um, if you have someone as a Jew, and you're trying to follow the Old Testament law and worship and serve God, and you have someone you think is cursed by God, you're not going to really go out of your way to help them out. You're going to try and avoid them. So, someone who was blind, begging was about all that they could do to earn a living. And then also, he's sitting by the roadside. Now, this could be one of two things. It could be uh, that he was not allowed to be in the city and kind of cast out of the city. But it could also be that he knew a bunch of people were going by. There were a bunch of people at this time who would be going through Jericho, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So he might have just strategically been sitting by the roadside because he knew he'd get more foot traffic. Uh, obviously, it was a little warmer for him outside than it is for us today. The idea of sitting by the roadside today just sounds horrible and deadly, but it was not 10 below zero for him. So he's sitting by the roadside. He's a blind beggar, someone who would be looked down upon in society. Uh, most people probably not try and help him very much. Obviously, there could be exceptions to that, but generally speaking. And you see in 48 kind of what the crowd thought of him. So he's calling out to Jesus, asking for mercy, asking for help. And what does the crowd say? When he's calling out to this man that everyone in that crowd knows is someone who heals people and cares for people, they rebuke him and they tell him to be quiet. They're like, shut up. This is Jesus going by. Just sit there and be quiet. He doesn't want to talk to you. He's got important things to do. So those are the two characters. Those are the reputations and what people would have thought. And then the setting. So it says in 46 that they came to Jericho. And then it says they're leaving Jericho. Now Jericho is on the way to Jerusalem. And if you look at the passage in Mark right before this, Jesus is talking to his disciples, telling them, okay, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to raise from the dead. I've told you about this before. I'm reminding you of it again. So this is right at the end of Jesus' ministry. He's on his way to die. He's going to Jerusalem to die. That is what he's doing. And the point in Palestine that they were, you would walk through Jericho to get to Jerusalem. It was uh, one of the main roads. So 
as they were walking and getting closer to Jerusalem, they would have met up with more people. This is around the time of the biggest Jewish feast uh, and celebration called Passover. So as many Jews as possible would have been traveling to Jerusalem at this time. So this crowd would have been growing as they went. And so Bartimaeus has prime seating right now because you're going to have tons of people going by. They're on their way to celebrate what God has done for them, how he brought them out of Egypt and saved them. So you're probably going to have people who are a little more likely to throw you a little money or a little food or something like that. So they came to Jericho. They're leaving Jericho. They've got the disciples and a great crowd with them, so there's this mob of people going by. So you've got this group of people. This is going to be noisy. It's going to be somewhat unorganized. I mean, they all are going the same place and know where they're going, so not worrying about that. But you've got this mob of people walking, and Jesus is probably somewhere in the middle of this, and people are talking to him and asking questions. And you've probably got people with disease or other things that are trying to press in and get healed by him. So this is, this would have been kind of a crazy thing to see. And you see this throughout the Gospels other times where it's just like this crazy mob of people, and it's, um, it would have been something to see for sure. And so with all that, with all this noise, you've got this guy crying out, trying to yell loud enough to be heard over this crowd, son of David, have mercy on me. And it's a guy that most people in the crowd really wish would be quiet. And it's like, just be quiet. Don't bother. <clears throat> so that is the setting. And notice here, Bartimaeus is not crying out, heal my blindness, but have mercy on me. He just wants anything from Jesus. He's heard of Jesus, heard what he can do, heard who he is. He's like, I just want something from him. I want some mercy from him. Just give me anything anything. So that is the setting. And now, let's take a look at the interaction between Jesus and Bartimaeus. So Jesus stops and says, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. There's a lot of cool stuff, even in these few lines. First, the fact that Jesus stopped and said, call him. Now, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to fulfill the greatest part of his mission on earth, to die. And he's got a timetable. He's going to die at a specific time on a specific day. That's part of God's plan that was put into effect. But Jesus here doesn't just keep walking and says, oh, yeah, I'll talk to him, call him, and you know, have someone kind of lead him over so he doesn't trip or get trampled by the crowd and bring him to me and we can talk as I'm walking. No, he actually stops which is an act of kindness and mercy for someone who's blind. To stop and be stationary so this blind person, it's easier for them to find you and you're not moving around. and It's not like some game of blind man's bluff. It's like, oh, he was here and now he's somewhere out there. So Jesus stops and says, all right, call him. I'll wait for him here. They called the blind man. What's the first thing they say? Take heart. Be encouraged. Jesus listened to you. He heard you. He wants to talk to you. Get up. He's waiting for you. He is calling you. You've been calling to him, now he's calling to you. And then verse 50, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. He's eager, he jumps up, heads over to Jesus. And the first part of 50 is really interesting. So, um, if ever the time should come when you're blind, a little piece of advice. If you're in a large crowd of people, probably something you don't want to do as a blind person is take the cloak that you're wearing and throw it into the crowd and then go wander off away from that point. Probably not your wisest option. Especially, like, we think of cloak, like, okay, he's got his jacket or, like, his suit coat or whatever the equivalent is. 
But for them, the cloak was more than that. So it was kind of a combination sleeping bag or blanket when you were traveling. Sometimes when you were traveling, if you didn't make it to a town, you would just stay in the countryside. You know, you'd step off the road a little bit, maybe build a fire if you had the materials, and then find some place that was reasonably comfortable, lie down, and wrap your cloak around you to keep warm. And also it was uh, protection to some degree from the elements and the weather, from the cold, from rain. It wasn't waterproof or anything, but would provide some protection as you're traveling. Jesus, in another gospel, he sends out the 12 after he's been teaching and healing and preaching. He says, okay, I've been doing this. You've seen me do it. Now I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. You're going to go out and do this and get some practice. And he tells them when they go out, he gives them instructions like when you get to a town, here are the things you do, the things you don't do. Here are the things you should bring with you, the things you shouldn't bring. But one thing he says is don't take an extra cloak. It's like, well, that's interesting. Why would he say that? Because he wanted his disciples in that case to be dependent on the hospitality of people in the towns that they went to. Because at that time of year, without two cloaks, there would be nights where it was too cold to sleep outside. So by saying that, he's ensuring that they're not going to be able to just go to a town and be like, oh, I'm so nervous, I can't do this. Well, we'll just stay outside the town. It's like, no, it's really cold and we don't have two cloaks. We have to find somewhere to stay tonight. So you've got this blind man and he throws off his cloak throws it away, leaves it, and then wanders off towards Jesus. Interesting. Why would he do that? He'd been blind for a while. It's not like he was new to this and didn't know. Why would he do that? It shows that he had some degree of faith even now. He believed to some degree Jesus was going to do something. Because if he thought he was going to talk to Jesus and Jesus was going to say, no, I'm not going to help you, I'm not going to heal you, I'm not going to do anything for you, he would have held on to that cloak because he would have needed it. But if he believed that Jesus was going to do something, maybe not heal his blindness, that's what he wants and what he's going to ask for, but that Jesus is going to do something for him and help him and care for him in some way. It's like, oh, I don't need the cloak. I've got Jesus. And if I need a cloak later, I can, I'll be able to find it again. He'll help me with that, or he'll heal my blindness. I'll be able to see, or he'll give me another one or whatever. So he throws off the cloak, showing a little bit of faith. So you've got Jesus who shows compassion, one, stopping to talk to him and listen to him, but then two, the fact that he stops. He calls to the man, and then Bartimaeus gets up. He's eager, he springs up, comes to Jesus, and throws off his cloak. There's some degree of faith there. And then verse 51, the question. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Now for us, all of us at some time, and some of us right now, we come to church or we think about God, we think about Jesus, and we have in our mind this question but the other side of it. The question, God, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want from me? What do I have to do? What do you want me to do for you? But that question is flipped. That's not how it should be. It's the other way around. The Bible says Jesus came not to be served but to serve us. He comes and he asks us, what do you want me to do for you? Because he says we can't do anything for him. He's like, I'm God. I don't need anything from you. There's nothing you can give me I don't already have. There's nothing you can provide for me that I'm lacking. There's nothing you can bring to me and say, I've been looking for that for the last thousand years. Thank you. Now I'm complete. Where'd you find that anyway? I couldn't find it. Where was it? No. We are not Jesus. We do not come to him saying, okay, what do you need? What do you need from me? What do you want me to do? 
how, what do you require of me? We are the blind man. We are all Bartimaeus. Those of you who are here this morning and don't know Jesus, you are Bartimaeus. You are the blind man. Obviously not in a physical sense, but you're going through life and you don't realize that Jesus is right there calling out to you. Look at what Bartimaeus was doing. He wasn't searching for Jesus. He wasn't looking for him. He wasn't asking people about him. He was sitting by the side of the road doing the same thing he did every day, begging for food, for money. And Jesus was the one who came by. He heard about it in the crowd. Jesus is here. Really? Ooh, Jesus, Jesus, where are you? Jesus was the one who came to him. Jesus is the one who calls him over. He wasn't looking for Jesus. He was just going about his day, doing the stuff he always did every day. And that's how it is. That's the place all of us have been in, those of us who now know Christ and believe in him, and those of us who don't here. Those who don't, that's the place you're in. Jesus is right here. He's calling out to you. He's calling to you. He wants you. He's waiting for you. And you're just going about your day, and you didn't know that Jesus was going to stop by today and say, hey, what do you want me to do for you? And those of us who have Christ, don't forget, we've been in that place. And it's so easy for us to fall back into that uh, mindset of thinking, all right, what do you want me to do for you? Even this week, as I was prepping this sermon and knowing I was going to preach this very point, there were those times where I'm thinking, all right, God, what do you want me to do to make it better? What do you want me to do to say, oh, you did such a great job? What do I have to do? It's like, no, 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 no. Jesus did it all. He did everything. This is a privilege I get to do because of what he's done for me. This isn't something that at the end of my preaching after second service, Jesus is going to say, okay, now on that scale of 100, it's like, a 70 instead of a 65. That was really good preaching. Or, man, I can't believe that preaching was so bad. What were you thinking? You're like a 50 now. This is horrible. Try again, but actually try something else. Don't do that again. That was really bad. That's not how it is. It's not how it is. Jesus has done everything. The only thing he calls us to do is believe. It's the only thing. And so just as Jesus asked Bartimaeus, Jesus asks you today, what do you want Jesus to do for you today? What do you want him to do for you? Take a minute to think about that. What's going on in your life? What do you want Jesus to do? Is it something physical like the blind man? Is it something, you know, relational, relationship with someone, emotional, something spiritual? What do you want Jesus to do for you today? We are Bartimaeus. We are not Jesus wandering around asking people, asking God, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do? We're Bartimaeus. We're the blind man sitting by the side of the road, not expecting Jesus to come by. And he comes by and says, I want you. Come to me. What do you want me to do for you today? What's the blind man say? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. Jesus doesn't come and say, you know, I know you want healing from blindness, but uh, have you been working at this yourself? Like, have you been trying really hard to see better? Or to see, you know, maybe it's just a problem with you. Have you been to a bunch of doctors and all this stuff? No, Jesus doesn't say, you know, I can't really accept you until you've got this blindness thing figured out. So deal with that and then come back to me and then we'll be good to go. Nope, he takes the blind man as he is. He takes the blind man, someone who Jewish society says was cursed by God, 
or at least not loved by God, if not actually cursed, who was kind of worthless in society, couldn't really do anything except sit around and beg, or, you know, if you had family you lived with, you'd be mooching off your family. You couldn't really contribute anything in the society at this time. Uh, also, with Jewish law, people who, were, who had physical deformities and things like blindness were seen as unclean. So for someone like Jesus, who's seen as this rabbi and this Jewish teacher and leader, to interact with this man and especially to touch him would have been a big no-no. It would have made Jesus unclean for a while, for a certain amount of days, depending on... Uh, what the instance was, you know, what the um, physical ailment or deformity was that the person Jesus was interacting with had. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to go to the temple and celebrate Passover. If he touches this guy, he becomes unclean, and if it's for long enough, he can't go in, into the temple when he gets to Jerusalem because he has to be purified first through some ceremonial things. Uh, and the passage doesn't say here whether or not Jesus actually had physical contact with the man, but we know in other passages and healings that Jesus does that all the time. It's not something he was squeamish about or afraid of. He wasn't worried about that. So, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. What's Jesus do? He does it. He says, go your way, your faith has made you well. A quick note here, when Jesus says your faith has made you well, he's not saying to the man, you did this yourself. You've got such great faith, you're the one who made this healing happen. Ephesians chapter 2, I don't have a slide for it up on the screen, but verses 8 and 9 say, it's by grace you've been saved, through faith. So there's the faith part. Salvation comes through faith, but it's by grace. And this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no man can boast. So Jesus, what he's saying here when he says, your faith has made you well, he's saying the faith, which even itself is a gift from you given by God, that has made you well. So he's not saying to the man, you've made yourself well because you have such great faith. He's saying God has given you even this faith and you've been healed because of that. You believe and now your faith has made you well. But that faith is a gift from me. You didn't like summon it up in yourself. It didn't come to you by yourself. So that's that, the interaction between them. And then what's the result? Well, he's healed. 52, Jesus says to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. Immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. That's how Jesus' healing works. Immediately it happens. What happens, Jesus doesn't become unclean when he interacts with the man. The man's uncleanness doesn't like rub off on Jesus and he's like, ooh, ooh, this is bad. I got to take care of this. If you could just step back, keep a safe distance for a while, that'd be great. No. Jesus' cleanness is transferred to the other person. Jesus heals him. Jesus makes unclean things clean. Unclean things don't make Jesus unclean. So we're all here this morning. And for all of us, whether we know Jesus or not, we've got uncleanness in our life. We've got sin. We've got pieces of ourselves, pieces of our lives we wish weren't there. And for those who don't know Christ, you might be thinking to yourself, this sounds great, but I'm so messed up. I'm so ugly inside. Jesus would never accept that if he knew this, that, or the other thing. Well, Jesus already knows. He knows everything about everyone. He knew when he talked to this blind man that the man was blind. It wasn't like, whoa, didn't know you were blind. Step back, you're unclean. No, he knew. And he healed him, and he took that uncleanness and got rid of it and put cleanness in its place. And that's what Jesus does for us. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die, and he's going to get there, and he's going to die 
for the sins of the world, and God's going to raise him from the dead three days later. And in doing so, God's going to say, this works. This is all a person needs to come to me, is to believe in Jesus. He did all the work. All the uncleanness you have, come to Jesus and he'll wash it away. You're not going to make God unclean. God's going to make you clean. And you don't fix the blindness or whatever it is in yourself before you come to Jesus. You come to him broken and messed up, and he's the one who fixes you. And it works immediately. The other really cool thing is in 52, what does Jesus say to the man? He says, your faith has made you well. This faith that I've given you, you're healed. You're well. But he also says, go your way. So he doesn't heal the man and say, all right, I've healed you, and now because I've done that, you have to follow me for five years. Or I want you to memorize all the things I said from the Sermon on the Mount. Don't worry if you weren't there. These 12, they can fill you in, and you can work on that. And he doesn't even say, you know, go do your own thing, but first come and spend Passover with me. He just says, go your own way. He, gives, he asks him, what do you want me to do for you? I want you to heal me. I want to be able to see again. Jesus says, all right, done. And then says, go your own way. He doesn't put any conditions or requirements on that. But look at what the blind man does. What does he do? He doesn't say, all right, and wander off in the opposite direction. It says he followed Jesus on the way. Why would he do that? He got everything he came for. What did he want? He wanted Jesus to heal his blindness, and Jesus did it. Maybe it could be he's thinking Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. This could be part of him being a son of David. He's going to do really great, cool things. That might have been part of it. Or it might have been that after getting this healing physically, he realizes that Jesus has more to offer than just a physical healing. Because he does. Jesus does tons of physical things in the Gospels. He heals a bunch of diseases. He teaches, speaks words. But all these things are pointing ahead to the greater healing he's going to accomplish for people on the cross. You can heal all the blindness and all the paralysis and all the demon possession in the world, and eventually those people are going to die still. You can heal the most severe case of cancer, the most severe physical ailment, completely, but that person's still going to get old and die. If that's all you do, that's great but it has limited value in the scope of eternity because it doesn't last. But Jesus comes and says, I'm not just going to do these physical healings. These are going to show, just like I have power over this thing that you haven't had power over before, just like I can heal your eyes. I can take eyes that can't see and I can make them see again. I can take the sin in you and I can get rid of it. I can make you holy. I can make you pure through my death and resurrection. I can give you a healing that lasts for more than 10 years or 50 years or 100 years. I can give you healing that's going to last forever. That is what Jesus ultimately offers us. Ultimately, he doesn't just offer us a great life now, a happy life now, a comfortable life now. Ultimately, he says, there's something better and there's something more. Look at me Look at the cross, look at what I did, and think about eternity. Don't just think about the next five years or the next 50 years. Think about forever. I've done things that have impacted forever. A few other verses from John 8 and Psalm 36. 
Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In Psalm 36.9, speaking of God, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. That second line of Psalm 36, I think, is really, really cool. Jesus, in this passage, heals someone who's blind. He heals blindness. He takes sightlessness and puts sight there. In John 8, he says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And there are other passages where he says, you're all blind. You're spiritually blind. You don't see who I am. You don't see that I am not just a man, but I'm God. You don't see that I've brought salvation to you. And he says, you have eyes that don't see. And that's true for in this room, those of you who don't know Christ, you have eyes. You can look around the room and see. You can go about your day, read things, drive here, drive home. But there's a spiritual blindness that you have. There are things that you think you can see, but you can't. Now imagine someone who's blind, who's been blind their whole life. How do you explain sight to someone who's never experienced it? How do you explain what that is? And think about someone who's been blind their whole life and thinks that everyone is that way. They think that's the norm. And you go up to them and you say, no, no, there's this thing called sight I can see. It's like, what? What's sight? What's that? And you try and explain it and do kind of a poor job, probably, or at least I would. It's like, well, it's like color. Well, what's color? Well, I don't know. But you try and explain it, and they're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's not my experience. And spiritually, that happens all the time. You talk to someone about Jesus, they're like, what? That's crazy. I don't see that. I don't experience it. Well, of course not. You're blind. And we were all blind once. It's not like I'm standing up here and I'm better, and I found sight by myself. I was just as blind as everyone. And Christ opened my eyes and shone light into my life. And that light is the light of the cross. That's what it means to follow the light of the world. To believe that in darkness, Jesus broke in. And in the darkness of sin, darkness of separation with God, he shone the light of the cross and the empty tomb of his death and resurrection. That's ultimately what the light is. That's the ultimate light that shines in the greatest darkness. In your light do we see light. Jesus is the one who makes all things visible. His light, that light that he shines, allows us to see everything else that is. It breaks through darkness. So, as you're sitting here today, I ask you the question that Jesus asked. And Jesus is asking you this question. What do you want Jesus to do for you today? A few points of that. One, take heart. He's calling you. If you don't know Jesus, be encouraged. He wants you. He's calling you. It doesn't matter how much darkness you have. It doesn't matter how much ugliness you have. He's seen it all before. There's nothing you can bring to him that he'll say, whoa, that's super messed up. I can't really handle that. Or, whoa, I had no idea that you were thinking that or that you'd done that. That, ooh, ooh. You should really work on that for a while. He calls people to him that he knows are blind, that he knows are messed up, that he knows are sinners. He knows that. He's not surprised. He's not surprised by anything you do. He's never been surprised by anything I've done. That's how he wants us to come. What did Ephesians 2 say? It's not by work so that no one can boast. He wants us to come all messed up so that he fixes us up and he's the one who gets the glory. 
He wants to be the one to bring healing. He's the one who died for our sins. We don't die for our own sins. He's the one who brings salvation. We don't bring it ourselves. We're the ones sitting on the side of the road. He's the one who walks by and says, Jesse, I want you. I see you're blind. I see you're all messed up. Don't worry about that. Believe in me. I took care of all the ugliness in you. And I'm going to take care of all the ugliness that comes up for the rest of your life. Because I'm Jesus. I did that on the cross. I did that in raising from the dead. You don't have to worry about that. Just believe in me. I'll take care of everything. Take heart. Jesus is calling you. Jesus wants you. Second, your faith has made you well. The question that we come so often to Jesus with, what do you want? What do you need? What do I have to do? Some of you might be sitting here this morning because you think that going to church on a Sunday morning is what God requires you to do. Like, oh, I went to church. Now I'm good with God. Or he thinks better of me or whatever. Not the case. It's great that you're here this morning. God wants people to be in community with other believers, to hear the word preached, to celebrate and worship through singing, to spend time in community with people. But in terms of your status before God, going to church doesn't change that. Faith is what changes that. Believing is what changes that. In another part of the New Testament, uh, Jesus says, what does it mean to obey the commands of God? What are the commands of God? To believe in me. To believe in Jesus Christ, that is the command of God for us. What does God want for me? He wants you to believe. Jesus wants you to believe in him. That is what ultimately makes us well. That is what ultimately brings healing to us. And then third, follow the light of the world. Again, what does it mean to follow? To believe. To believe in Jesus. To believe that in darkness, light is broken in. In 1 John, it says, God, and God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. The light that he brings absolutely drives back all darkness. So if you look around in this room, obviously there's lights. It's light outside. But it hasn't completely driven away darkness. You can see shadows in the room, under the pews, under the overhang of the balcony there in various places. I'm throwing a shadow on the floor. So the light is not absolute in that sense of it's completely driven away every piece of darkness and shadow. But that's how God is. So absolute is the light that God is, it completely drives out every speck and scrap of darkness. And that's what God's in the process of doing in us. It's not completed yet, it's in process, but it's going to be someday. So, as we go from here today, go about the rest of our day, I encourage you to take advantage of the fact that Jesus wants to serve you. To take advantage of the fact that he wants to do something for you, and that something is he wants to save you. He wants to help you in ways no one else can. He wants to heal you from sin, which no one else can do. He wants to give you that same eagerness and joy that Bartimaeus has, that same just awe and delight in what he does that causes you to follow him, not because he demands it, but because you see in him something that isn't anywhere else. What do you want Jesus to do for you 